morning. I want to speak with you today about the reality of hell. Lots of people are talking about hell these days. It's a hot topic. Rob Bell's recent book, Love Wins, ignited the current debate, suggesting that the church had been wrong for 2,000 years. Two new books confront Bell's errors. Mark Galley's God Wins, Heaven, Hell, and Why the Good News is Better Than Love Wins. And Francis Chan's book, Erasing Hell, What God Said About Eternity and the Things We've Made Up. And these look to be scripturally sound comebacks to Bell's slippery approach of posing questions without declaring biblical truth. Now, it is popular today to portray believing the Bible as outdated craziness, basically. But God's word is true no matter what. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. And what we're going to read in a moment in Matthew 13 speaks of the reality of hell, the fate of all those who reject our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have here in the verses we're going to read as we do in Scripture, about every topic on which it touches is an authoritative, trustworthy revelation from God about the way things are and will be. As we look at this explosive subject of hell, I want us to explore the truths it teaches and response it calls for. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13. We're going to read... Verses 47 through 50. Stand with me to read God's word. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. You know, we're in Matthew 13 that contains eight parables of the kingdom. This is the seventh of those eight parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today humbled in your presence. I think of Charles Spurgeon who began a sermon on the eternal conscious torment of the wicked in hell. Beloved, these are such weighty things that while I dwell on them, I feel far more inclined to sit down and weep and to stand up and speak to you. Lord God, these verses we've just read, though we may not have been aware until just now, are verses that make us weep. Lord, give us appropriate compassion. Give us appropriate personal caution. And open our eyes, Lord, as we look together at what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Matthew 13 contains eight parables of the kingdom. We have looked at six so far. Kicked off with the parable of the sower that defines the rest, illustrates the different responses people will have to Jesus. Most negative. Then there was the wheat and the weeds, showing how believers and unbelievers will coexist in the world between Christ's first and second comings. And then we had two sets of parables grouped together, the, the mustard seed and the leaven showed how God's kingdom starts small and grows large, influencing many and transforming all who believe. And then we looked at the hidden treasure and the costly pearl, which speaks of the immense worth of salvation and how people give up everything to possess it. And now the parable of the net, the dragnet, verse 47. It starts like the previous two parables, with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is continuing on his discussion and saying again, the kingdom of heaven is like, and this time he compares the kingdom of heaven to a net that was laid down into the lake so that a great catch of fish would be hauled in. The fishermen would work together pulling the full net to shore and sort out the fish. They would sit down and collect the good into containers to take to market and throw the bad ones away. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea that gathers fish of every kind. Like a dragnet gathering fish. A dragnet was a large weighted net dragged along the bottom of the lake. The ends were stretched out and drawn together. When it was pulled in, it would catch a large assortment of basically whatever was in the way of the net. And it had to be separated out. It wasn't all good stuff. Not the kind of fishing I do, where you take a pole and, and uh, put bait on the, on the hook and you throw it into the water and you wait. This was active. This was strenuous. This was complicated in, in some ways, and it was also fruitful. You get a lot of fish that way. Big net, big catch. Verse 48 says that when the net is full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. It was all filled up. They brought it up onto the beach, and they decided between the fish, which, which was a keeper, which one to throw away now this this parable it's a short one the last three have been very short but it, it 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 is one more example of the way that christ's rule in the lives of his people affects things how the kingdom of god among men affects men and women and boys and girls and jesus is comparing the work of the gospel to the way in which fishermen back then used a net to catch fish Just like the story of the weeds, there is an emphasis on the mixture of good and bad drawn in and on the final act of separating what is valuable from what is not. Now, the net sounds a lot like the weed and the weeds parable in what it teaches. You'll hear some of the same words, and especially that phrase, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Now the wheat and the weeds and the net are different. They, they sound similar and they touch on some similar things, obviously in the same context. But the wheat and the weeds and the net um, are focusing on different things. Wheat and the weeds focuses on believers and unbelievers coexisting in the kingdom between Christ's first and second comings. The net, though, focuses on the final separation of unbelievers from believers. This is not about the present situation of good and bad existing together, but a future reality where God will judge all people on the last day. They will gather, he will gather together the righteous for further service and safekeeping and discard the unredeemed as worthless. Verse 49, Jesus said, So it will be at the end of the age. It's going to be like this. It will be. And the angels will come out. Notice the word will. And separate the evil from the righteous. At the end of the age, the angels will come forth. Angels will be doing God's bidding here. Uh, Servants of God. And they will take out the wicked from among the righteous. It says at the close of the age, at the ending, where there's finality. And that word will is important. It means something that is decreed, settled. It has the idea of covenant attached to it. The idea of God determining the, 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 uh, the conditions of the relationship between Him and His people. Uh, conditions accomplished through the work of Christ on the cross. And what will happen is a uh, separation. They will separate the evil from the righteous. As to separate means to judge. To decide between. You see them out on the, on the shore with their nets. Good fish. Good fish. Good fish. Bad fish. Good fish. Good fish. Bad fish. Bad fish. Separating between the two. Judging. And God will do this between the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 50, Jesus says, Then not done yet then they will throw them into the fiery furnace that is a furnace filled with fire hot and it says that in that place there will be again this is a certainty will be weeping and gnashing of teeth they'll be thrown into the furnace of fire and they will be in agony I all know what it means to throw something. This was not a soft toss. This was not a lob. This was uh, to put something into place quickly and roughly. And the fiery furnace, it was a place where things were destroyed. Not annihilated completely with no hope of ever being blessed again. But destroyed in an ongoing manner continually being destroyed in that place is a real location what place the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth weeping signifies suffering you you tears are coming down because there is sorrow and regret and agony anguish over missing what others are enjoying and gnashing of teeth that signifies despair. Hatred, hostility, seething rage against God whom they have rejected and spurned. You ever notice 
somebody wants their way, they'll be really sugary sweet in asking. But once a no answer comes, they turn into a raging lunatic. Those who seek things for the wrong reasons scream in rage when they are rejected. That's how it will be in hell. The gnashing of teeth is due to hostility, not regret. Jesus says that the work of separating evil from those who are righteous will be done by angels. At the end of time, they will accompany those who are saved into heaven, while those who are not will be cast into the fiery furnace. This is how God says it's going to be. And plenty of people have tried to explain this away. It's just a a figurative kind of thing. God wouldn't really do that. God is loving. He would never... In light of these verses, what truths are taught? What what truths are embedded in this short parable? And what should be our response? So much could be said. So much could be said, but I want to call your attention to, to three primary truths and three corresponding responses that this passage points to. First, in regard to what truths this passage teaches about the reality of hell, what is true about hell, we learn several things of extreme importance. Number one is, it is serious business. Look, I like to joke as much as the next guy, but, but hell is serious business. I've been a fan of, of uh, Gary Larson's The Far Side comics for years, among my favorites was, was the one, he does a, a lot about heaven and hell, and one was, you know, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. And I laughed at that. I'm sorry for anyone who plays the accordion. I, I know we've got people in our congregation that are really good at it. Uh, there's one on the aerobics in hell, you know, there's, it's like, uh, okay, uh, a million on the left side. And, and people laugh, and, and people want to, think this it's it's a funny place it's not it's not a funny place this is serious business think of it this way heaven will be far far greater than you ever imagined and hell far worse this is a time for seriousness we need serious faith in christ where we fear god People don't like to talk about that either. Fear God? Well, but He's loving. We shouldn't fear Him. That's a misunderstanding of the idea. The Bible's teaching on hell should shake us to the core. The Bible teaching on hell should bring us to tears. These verses are sobering. They're, what they're saying to us is this is, this is how it's going to be. For all who don't believe, this is how it's going to be. I don't care who's explaining it away. It's right here in the Word. This is a warning from Jesus. And it's not the only one in the Bible, by the way. But it is a warning from Jesus. It's a warning to figure it out. To to get it. To straighten out what's crooked in your life. To bow before God's throne in order to live forever with Him. 
or else you'll die. The wages of sin is death. That's not a joke. Everything cursed dies. All who do not believe are under the curse of death. And that cannot be broken unless one receives by faith alone the gracious salvation found in Christ alone. The doctrine of hell is tough. I'm not going to pretend like it's not. It is tough. It's difficult. It's shocking. But it can't be ignored. C.S. Lewis wrote, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held to by Christendom and it has the support of reason. Dorothy Sayers said, we cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. You reject the concept of hell and you reject Christ. And it calls for good old-fashioned fear of God. A lot of people misunderstand what it means to fear God. It doesn't mean you're all like shaking in a corner. Fear here is a in the Bible is a, a cinnamon, synonym when it speaks of fearing God it, it's a synonym for awe for worship for reverence for wonder for adoration we're to fear God rather than men we're to think deeply of the implications of hell oh I don't want to think of negative things can't ignore this one I recognize that many people are living with unbiblical ideas. Don't expect an unbeliever to live with biblical worldview. On the other hand, there are a lot of Christians who are living with unbiblical ideas. We've got to see not our ideas, but God's. And once we have some semblance of clear vision, we've got to help people process what God says, not what we say, but what God says and how it ought to change their minds. You're already thinking about people that you, you know are hardened to the gospel. You're like, but they don't want to listen to me. It's okay. Do you expect any different? But they need to listen to God. They need to listen to God. So hell is serious business that can't be ignored. The second thing that is true about hell is that there will be permanent separation hell's a real place and it involves real people people who go there in real time and 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 everyone is not going to heaven universalism is a lie some people will be excluded from heaven there will be separation judgment from god it's the way it is i didn't make it up god did Verse, 30, verse 47 says that um, there are all kinds, all kinds of fish in the net. It's kind of like this, if you think of it in, in, in terms of the world. Uh, the net of God's sovereignty is, is out there. People can't see it, 
but it's there, and people are swimming around all over the place, doing their, what, their, do what they jolly well please, all the while the net is closing into shore, a little bit at a time, all, almost imperceptible. They, they don't know, but every single day the net goes closer and closer to the shore. And one day, it's going to be at the shore. That's the end of time. No second chances. Time's up. All kinds, literally all races. A strange way of speaking of fish, but natural way of highlighting the universal nature of God's judgment. But to hear some tell it, the gospel is all about a God without wrath bringing people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of Christ without a cross. False gospel. Unbiblical. Did you know that Jesus spoke more of hell than anything else? Over 13% of his teachings was about hell and judgment. Over half of his parables was about eternal judgment, dealing with eternal judgment. There will come a day of appropriate consequences. I kind of think of it uh, in terms of parenting. A lot of parents are too hard on their kid, you know, too authoritarian, and they give them no freedom. And then a lot of kids, a lot of parents are just too lenient. It's just, you know, amusement park every day. They want to be their kid's friend more than anything. But what we need is an appropriate balance of grace and truth. And here's what we see, that there is a perfect balance of grace and truth in God's dealings with mankind. People reap what they've sown. Simple as that. There will be a major separation between those who are righteous in Christ and those who are unrighteous in themselves. You are either living for Christ or living for yourself. One is at the center And by the way, the separation theme runs through Matthew's gospel. From the two ways in chapter 7 to the final judgment in chapter 25. Speaking of the good and bad being separated out. Speaking of separating the sheep from the goats. I've eaten goat. Not bad. But the sheep, good. The goats, bad here. Separation. Think of the things that Jesus said about himself, what he's like. He's humble and gentle. He also said that he's the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life. He also said, I am the door. The door. All of us used doors already today multiple times. What do doors do? Doors discriminate. Doors Keep some things in and some things out. Think of the door in your house. It keeps your family in and your kids in and and your pets, if you have them, in. But it also keeps dangerous strangers out. Robbers out. Bugs out, hopefully. Just because you like God doesn't mean you love him doesn't mean you belong to him you must love him and let everything else go your sin your agenda your selfish desires and willingly give it up for jesus 
because some get in the door and some do not. Jesus is the door. There will be a final separation. Third thing. There will be terrible suffering. Suffering. We don't like to talk about suffering. Who likes to suffer? There will be real suffering. Hell, by the way, is described as a place, Jude 7, where people undergo a punishment of eternal fire. Jude 13, utter darkness. Destruction. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Describe the judgment that will happen at Christ's coming. Take it a running start at verse 5. It says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There's the angels. It's going to happen. Verse 8, In flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer, verse 9, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And Paul says, that's why we pray for you. We don't want you to miss that. Well, yeah, maybe you'll go through, you will go through, you will, as a believer in Jesus, go through suffering here. So you won't there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3 says that while people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Assurance for believers, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are children of light. Revelation 20 and verse 10 speaks of everlasting torment of hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, by the way, is six times in the Gospel of Matthew. All that to say, we must face the reality of hell. There's so much more to be said about it. The Bible has so much more. Do a study on hell, and you could write a lot of books. It's real, it's eternal, it, it awaits many. And do not be deceived. There is no second chance after death, nor is there annihilation of the ungodly which would get them off the hook of that suffering they will be in real conscience conscious torment forever and those who go there will know that they have sentenced themselves by their refusal to believe and by their love of their own sin they preferred preferred themselves over God Romans 1 speaks a lot of that the question comes forth and some of you may already have been asking it in your head and how can God be loving and at the same time there be eternal punishment? 
Well, the Lord Jesus in Scripture, as understood by the majority in the early church and the medieval church and the Reformation and the evangelical church, acknowledge both the love and justice of God. Think of it this way. It is by the existence of hell that you know that God is loving. It is by the existence of hell that we can grasp the full depth and reality of God's love. How so? Because God's love is explained by his mercy and his grace and his justice. And the suffering, the terrible suffering, is just in hell. Randy Alcorn writes, Yes, hell is dreadful, but it is not evil. It is a place where evil gets punished. Something can be profoundly disturbing yet still be moral. Hell is moral because a good God must punish evil. Hell is, by the way, real, isolated, eternal agony. And it shows that God is good, loving, and just. So... How shall we respond? How ought we to respond to these verses? And, and so many others in the Bible that so clearly, I mean, there'll be another day. We're going to come to, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. This is the good thing about going verse by verse. You can't skip these parts. And we will come to more parts like this in Matthew. So how do we respond? What is the response that is called for in light of the reality of hell? Three corresponding responses. Number one, since it is such serious business, you need to display repentance. It's called for. Verse 48. When the net's full, men drew it ashore, sat down, sorted the good into containers, threw away the bad. Forty-nine. That's how it's going to be. The angel will come and separate the evil from the righteous. See, interesting. You got these fish coming through a net, and you look at one and you say bad fish. You look at the other, good fish. People come through the door, and you look at them and you think, I don't know. I don't know, but God does. But interesting that the the angels will know. They're going to know who the righteous are and who the unrighteous are. How will they know? God is going to mark them out. God is going to point them out. That one. That one. That one. No, not that one. No, 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 not that one. God's going to mark the righteous You got to make sure where you stand with God. You have to make sure. You have to. 
And you've got to make all the more sure of his calling of you. If you're, if you're a believer, you've got to say, well, I want to make sure because the Bible says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I have the gift of salvation, then that's irrevocable. It's not going to be taken away. So make sure. And when you make sure, then warn others of the reality of hell. Repentance is necessary. Anyone who denies hell, anyone who jokes about it, doesn't really believe that it's real. If you know it is, you have a moral responsibility to tell it like it is. Loving sin more than God sends you to hell. That's how it is. J.C. Ryle says that the gates of heaven are broad enough to receive the worst of sinners but too narrow to receive the smallest grain of unforsaken sin. Just because you think something is true doesn't make it true. If you're living and thinking there really isn't a hell, one day everyone's going to end up in the same place. I don't know what you're doing here. If that's what you're thinking. Because why go through the pain of following Jesus then? A.W. Tozier wrote, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deathly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. To repent means to turn from your sins to God. If you believe the authority of God's word and you're going to accept it by faith, even when doing so is painful and confusing and or disturbing. And by the way, if the Bible always agrees with you, you're probably twisting something. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, God says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in, in heart, in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Functionally, repentance looks like you know who God is. He's holy. And you know who you are, sinful. And you rely on him for forgiveness every day. That's repentance. Display repentance. Number two, since there will be a permanent separation in judgment, you need to seek righteousness. Righteousness is needed. Again, verse 49. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Some will be righteous, some will not. By the way, without righteousness, you won't be saved. Let's just get that out there. Without righteousness, you're not going to heaven. You need righteousness. So you've got to look for it. You've got to seek it. Matthew 5 says, blessed, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who consider themselves bankrupt spiritually. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because they know they don't have any on their own. Humble because you know you're doomed without Jesus. Not righteous, but knowing that Jesus is. Believing 2 Corinthians 5, which says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Romans 3 tells us that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's not a righteousness of the law. Paul spoke of that in Philippians 3. He said, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And you've got to tell other people that they need to seek righteousness as well. Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm reading through this as I read through the Bible. I just read this. It's amazing. It fits right here. It says this. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides the only hope, the only cure for the sin problem. Now, functionally, righteousness looks like pursuing God's will. There's all sorts of things people will say what righteousness is, but here's, here's I'll boil it down. You, you want what God wants, and you do what God wants, and you love what God wants, and basically all you want to do is please God. In everything. Life for you is all about God and what He wants. It's a Holy Spirit planted desire in your heart to be delighting in Him. You need righteousness. It only comes from Jesus. Last thing, number three, since there will be a terrible suffering, you need to accept rescue as offered. It's available. Without it, Without rescue from Jesus, you will go to that place where Jesus said, in that place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll go there if you don't have the rescue. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And encourage others to do the same. Minister the gospel. If someone had a terrible disease and you had the only cure, you'd have to tell them. If people were trapped in a burning building and you knew the escape route, you have a moral responsibility to tell them. It is immoral not to. By the way, those saved by Jesus ought to have the tenderest hearts regarding the fate of all people. We should weep over the lost. Like the father who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but begs them to turn from their evil ways. In the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, 70 of them, I won't read all 70, just three of them. They were written in 1722 to 1723. I found these entries. Number nine, these were his, his, his resolutions for living life. He says, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Number 10, Resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Number 55. Resolved to endeavor to my utmost to ask as I can think I should as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell's torments. This is not morbid. This is being sensitive to the realities that we want to ignore. something I've been trying to do lately and it's been changing the way I act 
So I think that's a good thing. I've been trying to live as if I'm on a missions trip every day. I've been on a lot of missions trips overseas. When you go on a missions trip, you're always on your best behavior most of the time. Depends on how long the trip is. But your eyes are open for opportunities. Daily occurrences that we drive by all the time become God-ordained appointments. We're charged with expectation all day long, and we love it. And then we come home, and we hate our neighbor. So how do you do this? How do you, how do you live, serve with a missions trip mentality every day? It's really easy and really hard. Here's what you do. You wake up in the morning, and then you remember your calling, and you do it. That's it. You wake up in the morning, and you resolve to fulfill your ministry. Benefits abound. Fruitfulness. You see God doing things. Blessing. And, and there is a cost. Your convenience, it will cost you. It will cost you your negative attitude towards people, places, and situations. It will also cost you your way. The reality is we are afraid to talk about death and hell. Ooh, it's judgmental. It's not culturally acceptable. It's negative. Accepting God's rescue means you trust God to save you. You trust him to keep you. You humbly put your faith in in Jesus' hands, and you stay there. And you tell as many people as you can about that rescue. If you believe it's true. If you believe that what we read this morning is true. This is serious business. There will be a separation. Judgment is coming. There will be terrible suffering. It has been decreed. So shall it be. This is the way it is. And so the seriousness and the, the separation and the suffering of hell calls for repentance and righteousness and rescue. Constant torment, unending agony, ongoing pain and mercy. Who'd want that? No one. But many will not listen to the warnings. Blinded by Satan, just like in the days of Noah and in the days of the prophets. Foolishness to them. Let me close with this, and the worship team, come on back up. But there are really only four objections a person might have to all of this. Number one, time. You may say, hey, I, I'm just too busy to think about it today. Well, maybe so, maybe so. But when you consider the reality of hell, there ought to be a sense of urgency. The time is now. Number two, need. Maybe you say, I don't really need that. I'm good. I'm good. I'm set. Maybe you don't really need, feel the need to know whether you're headed for heaven or hell. But we've already seen that, that you do need to know that based on what Jesus says. Could be desire is the problem. Maybe you don't want to face it. You're just too fixated with other things. That's honest. Don't wait too long. And number four, maybe it's trust. 
maybe you just don't trust what God's saying. Maybe you don't believe what he says about it. The future's in God's hands. You gotta realize that and respond. Grab onto that life preserver that has been extended to you. Grasp it and gain eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, when it boils down to it, it's not about avoiding hell, but about entering into life, about entering into the joy of Jesus. Lord, we know that hell is sin's reward, and we thank you that heaven is Christ's reward. Lord, impress upon our hearts to the nth degree that sinners need Jesus, that we need a Savior every single day, every single person that we see needs to flee to you from the wrath to come. Lord, give us grace. Give us grace.